Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, my mother has passed away, but every occasion that we would get together as a family, and she had a large crowd, she'd always tell the most embarrassing stories about me. And of course her favorite, the one that she'd inevitably tell, was that I was such a wild kid that she just gave up. She decided that she couldn't do it anymore. And so she prayed, she just said a little prayer, I give up, he's all yours. And it was soon after that we went to a revival meeting in, uh, in Texas and I went forward at the revival and decided to go into to ministry. I never knew about her prayer uh, until years later and she'd tell that story. But I thought I would talk today about mothers and women in the Bible. And this is a key passage in John. John is depicting the recreation of the world. In the beginning was the, the Word and depicting then the the opening lines of Genesis, the wedding comes at the end of this week. So here is the new creation, and at the end of the week is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Many people think that's the significance of the wedding at Cana of Galilee. That it's the completion. Here is a foretelling of the completion of the purpose of of creation. The Sabbath day itself, eternal Sabbath, and here in John, it seems to be, we think that John wrote both the book of Revelation and the gospel, and in Revelation then he talks about this wedding supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So anyway, let's read John chapter 2 and read about this wedding, beginning in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him after this he went down to Capernaum he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days 
And so here is, we think, the sign is the sign of the purpose of all things. And it's interesting that his mother is given such a prominent place. Not only here, but her appearance at the end of the gospel, in the closing scene, you know, at the crucifixion, some of the last words he speaks in John are about his mother. It's not only Jesus' mother, though, that is an important woman in John. John just seems to focus that women, uh, more than men, they confess and serve the Messiah, as John depicts it more readily. In chapter 4, the longest conversation occurs with a woman, actually a woman of Samaria. And Martha is the first in the gospel to make a great confession about Christ and identify Jesus as the Messiah. And so the example of humble service, which Jesus is trying to teach his male disciples, seems to first be grasped and enacted by a woman, Mary, who anoints Jesus with her hair, anoints his feet. And this occurs right before Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, well, you need to serve one another. You need to wash one another's feet. And the women, Mary and Martha, John notes, Jesus loved. I think it's the only place that he says that. It is women who first come to the empty tomb, who first encounter the risen Jesus. It is a woman who is the first mass evangelist. You know, the woman of Samaria goes and tells her whole village about Jesus. And it's a, a woman, his mother, who first prompts Jesus' miraculous ministry and who witnesses the end of that ministry. On the cross, Jesus will say, John, here's your mother, and here is your son, John. And so what I'm suggesting is that this privileging of women is actually taking on a profound theological significance in John because there is this crucial role of women, but I think it takes on a theological weight because women at key points provide the model of belief, of self-sacrificial service, and of what we are to emulate. John seems to be narrating for us the point that Paul will develop, and that is that to be joined to Christ is the fulfillment of the picture in Genesis that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, that we are to become the bride of Christ. And that will mean that we'll pass beyond stereotypical male-female roles in order to put on Christ, in order to be the bride of Christ. And in John, this place of the bride is connected to we join a new family. He's going to use a lot of family language. Becoming a family-centered, we're to abide in Christ, we're to become his extended family, the family of God. We're to see God as father and his children as our brothers and sisters whom we would sacrificially serve. This is the thing that every mother knows that maybe many people without children don't realize. You suddenly realize when you have children, I think even for fathers, oh, now my life suddenly is centered somewhere else other than in myself. And of course that self-sacrificial Familial love is part of salvation, that we're to be able to ex extend that to the family of God. Now men in John 
typically are hung up. <laughs> they're hung up on the law. They're hung up on custom. They're hung up on power. And of course, it's the men who will kill Jesus due to these concerns. Men, in a sense, in John, illustrate that which is not concerned with the family, not concerned with abiding together in love. And this is connected very often to a failure of belief, a failure of service on their part. And so, for example, right before the woman at the well, we have the discussion with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He's described as a leader of the Jews, and he has a conversation with Jesus, and I think it's purposely set side by side with the woman of Samaria. Here's a comparison. Here's the best and brightest of the Jewish men, and here is a Samaritan woman. In comparison, Nicodemus comes out not looking so good. They both have problems. You know, she has desire problems. She's uh, living with a man that is not her husband. She's been married five times. She has an alienation problem. You know, the story that she comes out to the well at noon. Because that's when no one else would be there. It's during the heat of the day. And she has an ethnic problem. She's a Samaritan. She has a gender problem. She's a woman. And so it's the realization of her problematic status, though. She recognizes that. She says to Jesus that you being a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, that you ask me to get you a drink of water. And so she realizes the barrier. Nicodemus and the woman at the well are an example, maybe, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here is the one that, like the tax collector, the woman recognizes her problems, and that makes her readily receive the message of Jesus. But the Pharisee is sort of arrogant. He kind of knows everything, and that's kind of Nicodemus. And as long as we're in that condition of unreceptivity, of a kind of inability to hear or listen, that seems to be a barrier between receiving Jesus. And so Nicodemus has a fear problem. He comes at night. He doesn't want people to know that he's associating with Jesus. He has a status problem. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't want to lose his status. We think he's on the ruling council. We're going to see him later on the Sanhedrin. But his main problem maybe is just an incapacity for thought. Jesus gives him a very simple illustration. You must be born again. And he says, oh, you mean I have to return to my mother's womb? It's a kind of incapacity for imagination. New birth is inconceivable to him. Maybe it's a, even a repulsive concept for a man who thinks of himself as highly important with a position. The woman at the well doesn't have much to give up, but Nicodemus has a lot to give up. Jesus and the woman begin with a discussion about sharing a drinking vessel, which represents, I think, the kind of intimate ground, the common ground. They're at a well, and Jacob's well is very famous in Old Testament history. This is the place where marriage, many marriages of significance have been initiated. 
either at this particular well and then very often at other wells. You know, think of the various pictures of Abraham going back and securing a wife for his son or Moses securing a wife. It happens at the well. The thirst that they begin to talk about, of course, Jesus initiates the conversation, but he turns that thirst into a picture of the way that desire can represent the absence of life. You thirst for life, and the water then represents the capacity for quenching that thirst. And Jesus says that I'll give you springs of living water. And so she's been to the marriage well five times. And her desire seems unquenchable. She can't gain what she wants to gain. And she easily follows Jesus' employment of the metaphor. Natural water represents the water that may well up within a human being, quenching desire and giving life. And drinking from one cup, overcoming division, is the union that quenches desire through abiding together. I mean, that's the picture in John, that we abide with Jesus. And so enmity between men and women is overcome in a community of equality. Ethnic divisions are going to be overcome, Jews and Samaritans. That's the worst ethnic bridge there is, almost worse than that between simply Gentiles and Jews. New birth is a metaphor. You know, that escapes Nicodemus. He doesn't get that the human problem is resolved through reinvention of the imagination. And he who abides with the Father and in the Father's household, Jesus says, will be born again. And so the women of John are attuned to this family kind of love as salvation. It is precisely family concerns that will serve as the occasion really in John that's thematic in the teaching. So here Jesus' mother in the story is concerned about a family issue. You know, here's this young couple and running out of wine at a wedding might be embarrassing. We might think, well, this is a kind of trivial thing. Yet it's significant in that it's the inauguration of his public ministry. It's concerned with this wedding. Two women, Mary and Martha, lost their brother Lazarus. And this is the key teaching about resurrection. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we are told Jesus love in this intimate little family. There's more imagery of thirsting, of tiredness, of heat, of just human condition and these scenes of intimate family scenes at the same time that there's also a very exalted depiction of, of Christ this intimate little family they're in their home and they're, we, we see it again and again people are in a dining room in a living room in a garden tomb and that's the hub for key events Jesus said to Martha I am the resurrection and the life you know, and she says, oh, I believe that he'll be raised at the last day. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He says, do you believe this? And this is the prop to Martha's good confession. I have had faith that you are the Christ. You are the anointed son of God. 
who is coming into the world. So long before Peter, there's Martha. After Lazarus' resurrection, Mary, by anointing Jesus with expensive nard and wiping his feet, Jesus says, don't bother, she's preparing my body for death. This is one of the most intimate domestic scenes in all of the gospel. And what Martha does for Jesus, he's going to try to teach the other disciples, you need to also be servants. And they remember in the next chapter he says, Peter, I'll, I'll wash your feet. And Peter even refuses to be put in that position. And the idea is that in both scenes there's a concern, a discussion of sacrifice. And the specific sacrifice, pouring out one's life for others. And Peter and the other apostles, they don't understand it. Mary has just demonstrated it. They've all seen it. Jesus connects it to his own death, to his own self-sacrificial death. And so Mary seems to understand that everything is to be sacrificially poured out. This most expensive thing she has for the love of Christ. Now Peter says, well, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. But of course he imagines self-sacrifice in a kind of masculine, violent kind of sacrifice, maybe going down sword fighting, as is evidenced in the garden where he cuts off Malchus's ear. And so if one were to derive a masculine and a feminine principle from John, it might be that men are largely defined and constrained by their roles in society. We're told of the occupation of the men and yet nothing of their children, nothing of their spouses. The men in the gospel are Pharisees, teachers, lawyers, rulers, fishermen. And the idea is that there's a kind of symbolic authority by which they would identify themselves that is very much a masculine part of the social nexus. And the status of being like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, keepers of the law, religious authorities is one that seems to keep even the best of the Jewish leaders afraid even at the end of the gospel you know when they're preparing for the burial of Jesus they're still doing it secretly Nicodemus comes at night and so the men we encounter important men are skulking around at night and Jesus challenges this system of valuation but those with the most to lose may be the least likely to give it up, right? We know that. It is a mode of thought which cannot ascertain the value in being a servant, in sacrificing everything for the other. Peter is the leading apostle, and yet it is not clear that he understands what Mary and Jesus, what that represents. Even at the end of the gospel, Jesus will say, feed my sheep. The idea is do what Mary did. And he doesn't seem to get it. His mode of thought obstructs salvation. It's not that women are not also constrained by particular roles, like the woman of Samaria, like Mary and Martha, like the women at the tomb. And yet they seem to move about more freely, without fear. They offer ready confessions of belief and humble service. 
Could it be that just as John deconstructs other binaries, you know, there's light and dark, but he says the light is overcoming the darkness. There's life and death, and yet life is defeating death in the life of Christ. There's the above and below. Jesus is pictured as bridging that gap that even to Nathaniel, he'll say, you'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here is the division of Jacob fulfilled. And so Jesus is overcoming alienation and distance between people and God. Gender and marriage serve elsewhere in Scripture. And I think here in John, he's doing something very similar as depicting salvation. The depiction of the messianic age, you know, in Matthew, in Luke, is with a, a wedding feast, literally called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Revelation pictures this same supper. But Paul in Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, he's going to connect an overcoming of male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. There's an overcoming of the division between men and women. It's suspended in some way. You know, if the original image is a male-female image, and that image is fallen, the depiction is that there is a, a kind of alienation within the very identity of who we are. But gender is overcome like other cultural constructs as we clothe ourselves in Christ. And so here the original image-bearing capacities are restored. That here is the true wedding feast. Here is the true fulfillment of maleness and femaleness. It's no longer couched in antagonism, but in mutual subjective love. And so in Genesis, this antagonism is the fall. The antagonism, the accusation between the man and the woman. And yet, Christ is overcoming this, this oppositional duality. That's what 1 Corinthians says in 11. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. The two are one, Paul says in Ephesians, and this is a great mystery. But it's brought into effect. He says, I'm speaking about Christ and the church. And so John is breaking down dualisms inclusive of this gender dualism. Some of which the idea part of these dualisms, they're kind of proto-Gnostic. They're Jewish perversions maybe of patriarchy, which are pervasive in that society and our own. And so there is a kind of gendered picture of salvation in which we become the bride of Christ. And so I think we can frame the deployment of salvation and gender beginning with the wedding at Cana, which exegetes through the centuries have seen then as a prolepsis or a pointing to a heavenly reunion with God in which the Christ, the groom, is joined with the woman, the bride, or the church. You know, John is a very theological book and I think this is one of the pictures, a key picture. So the final wedding fulfills the first failed marriage, maybe we could put it that way, 
through the assembled church, through the work of the previous days, you know, of the seven days of creation that are pictured there in John. And the movement of salvation history represented, you know, in the Old Covenant, it's really represented by John the Baptist. When John baptizes Jesus and there's an ingathering of the world and it culminates in a discussion with his mother. So there's the formation of the church, this discussion with his mother, and then the discussion of the final hour. He says, my, my hour is not yet. And of course, the hour is the hour of his death, but the hour of his work on the cross and the resurrection. And so the role of Mary, he calls her woman. It's interesting. And of course, that's just the word Eve. He's saying Eve is the prompt to Jesus miraculously replace the water that was there for purification purposes. They had all of these uh, rituals, purification rituals. It is a depiction of a messianic sign. Jesus calls her woman, and in both is the question, at the end and the beginning, the hour. The hour of Golgotha is indicated at Canaan. And so is Mary, in a sense, the representative mother of the new humankind, in that she becomes the mother of the beloved disciple? Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple, it says, took her into his own household. He rebukes his mother. What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. But at the culmination of the gospel, Jesus' mother is now the mother of the beloved disciple, who is his brother. So a woman and a man stood at the cross as models for Jesus' own true family of disciples. Here is Paul's description come true of the bride of Christ, the feminine subject identifies with and accepts. That's the depiction in Romans 7. There is a kind of incompleteness in the law that is fulfilled in Christ. There's a failed identity in the eye. One which men like uh, we've encountered in John. They seem to imagine life is in the law. Life is in the symbolic order. It's in religious authority or cultural authority. Paul describes the passage from alienation as being joined to this new family, this body of Christ. He says in Romans, My brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. He's depicting a wedding. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. The transition of being joined to the body of Christ and bearing fruit, the feminine bride, renders the law inoperative. And so the men of John have problems, status problems, and this is certainly overcome by being joined to Christ who embodies the law. The feminine stands for a kind of void that's created within the law. In the case of a king or a dictator in A.T. Robertson's depiction, the one who institutes the law and whose very word is the law his own relationship to the law is marked by the power of suspension. The place from which the law originates is marked by its disapplication. And so John, I think, is narrating this shift in his depiction of gender. And it's illustrated in John 8, 6 to 8, which describes Jesus' act. You know, there's the woman 
who is caught in adultery. And they bring the woman to him. And it's actually, the writing is a echoing of Exodus 32.15. That God writes the law with his finger. And Jesus is writing in the dirt with his finger. One who authored the law is now there. The one who embodies the law frees an adulteress from the condemnation of those who would deploy the law against her. And she's enjoined to sin no more and stands free of condemnation while her accusers, they depart. You know, the men who bring her there, they depart under the weight of the law. I think this is a depiction of what Jesus does for all of us. That we have this heavy weight that we would bear and he suspends it. All who are joined to Christ as his bride are freed from the weight of the law. The weight of achieving our own importance. The weight of saving ourselves in and through his love which embodies and surpasses the law. Abiding in the body in the family of God, in the household of God, in the living room of God. You know, that's the depiction. The church being joined together in agape love, joining a new family, being born again, having our lives centered in this new family, a new household, a new sort of body. This is our salvation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.